0: Embracing Jews on the move, sometimes exiles, and at other times Jews who are relocating. This is something that's deeply ingrained within Jewish culture and for good reasons. There are historical reasons why this ability to accommodate Jewish movement and Jewish population transfer has become part of simply how Jewish communities function. My grandparents moved from Uh, From Russia, my grandfather had actually spent a few months in Shanghai, then came back to Russia, met my grandmother, married her, and off they go to Canada. And there were Landsmanshaft organizations, organizations that were designed to help resettle Jews throughout Canada and to prevent Jewish communities from being too clustered in port cities and in places like Montreal. They moved out west and they would create small communities that served as the anchor to bring other communities, which is how my family ended up in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Of course, there was the Galveston Project in the United States that was also designed to help spread out Jewish immigration. And it worked in that creating small Jewish communities (laughs) to serve as the the basis for the, the primary needs that Jews would have when they come, both overcoming linguistic boundaries and then eventually establishing synagogues and schools and kosher food and mitzvahs all of these kinds of things were done in many, many different places. And it was understood that as Jews moved, people who they've never met, people to whom they are not related, will make their life in a new place possible. And they'll make it possible simply because they're Jewish and they welcome other Jewish people. And I would suggest that's not simply an obvious aspect of being Jewish. Instead, it's the result of a long historical process where this has become not only ingrained within Jewish cultural habitus, within Jewish cultural practices, but that in many ways, rabbinic Judaism as we know it, the Judaism that has given life to the many varieties of Jewish experience in the modern world, is itself a product of the experience of exile and diaspora. So, of course, we see elements of this even in the Bible. The the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, is filled with stories of diasporas and exiles. Jacob is exiled after uh, deceiving his father and and acquiring the blessing, um, moves to a foreign land where he has to work for his uncle Laban, and in this sort of condition of being outside of the land of Israel, this is where the 12 tribes are developed. Of course, the growth of Israel as a nation happens not in Canaan, but of course in Egypt. And then there's the destruction of the temple, which leads to the establishment of the community in Babylonia. And when Cyrus allows Jews to return to build the second temple, One of the things that's sort of recorded and and described is that not that many Jews go. Many of them stay in Babylonia, and Babylonia became the center of Jewish life for a thousand years. There was a way in which, somehow, Judaism had accommodated itself to exile, and even in antiquity, even before the destruction of the Second Temple, there are Jewish communities not just throughout Babylonia, there are Jewish communities in North Africa, there are even some Jewish communities in places in Italy, and they believe, possibly, in the Iberian Peninsula. So this condition of diaspora was already very central to Jewish consciousness, but it's, it's really in, with the destruction of the Second Temple that we find the development, really the consolidation of Rabbinic Judaism Of the, the Judaism of the Talmud, which is a product of the condition of exile, the destruction of the temple, and thinking through what it will mean to continue to be Jewish in the absence of a place to offer sacrifices, in the absence of a Jewish king and Jewish political autonomy in the land of Israel. The story that's recorded in the Babylonian Talmud, it's actually recorded in different versions. Um, throughout rabbinic literature, is that of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and that he, during the siege of Jerusalem, when the Romans had besieged Jerusalem, um, really disagreed with uh, the Biryoni, with the, the zealots who wanted to fight the Romans. And he and other rabbis disagreed because they felt like they would not win, that it was not possible for Jews to win this battle against the Romans. The Romans were much stronger than they were. But they were able to hold out during the siege, and at least in the version of the story told in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Kitin, there are four uh, very wealthy men who offer to keep the people, the residents of Jerusalem, stocked with, uh, with, with grain, with food, with wood for cooking, and that they had enough to last for 21 years. And of course, they had their own internally protected water supply, And the idea was that they could simply wait out and exhaust the Romans. And so there was no immediate reason to fight against the Romans because they could hold out. And the rabbis argued that it would be better to go out and make peace with the Romans. Whereas the birioni, the zealots, they argued that it would be preferable to fight them. And of course, the rabbis thought this was hopeless. Um, So what happened was, because of infighting between these groups, the biryoni, according to the Talmudic description of it, burned the food stores of the people in Jerusalem so that they would realize they had no choice but to fight. And this created a very desperate situation. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's son in law was one of the biryoni. And so he called him to speak to him privately and said, Do something. And he said, His son in law said, But what can I do? If I say anything, they'll kill me. They'll kill me for not wanting to go and fight the Romans. And Yohanan bet said, Well, I need to go out and speak to General Vespasian. You have to concoct a plan. And they said, Okay, I have an idea. Tell everybody you're sick. Let everyone come and visit you and say that you're sick. Then lie on your bed as though it's your deathbed. Put something that smells very bad next to you and pretend to die we'll put you in a coffin. And there was an understanding with the Roman generals that when important rabbis or leaders of Jerusalem died, they would let them come out of the city. And so they'll carry him out in a coffin. And that then from his coffin, he can rise up again and ask to speak to the general. And so there's this amazing image of Yohanan ben Zakkai coming out as though dead, as though the people carrying the coffin didn't know that he was in fact alive. And he rises from the coffin and greets General Vespasian and says, Hail Caesar! And Vespasian says, Oh, but you lie. And he says, No, I don't. You shall be named Caesar. And then a runner comes from Rome and says that uh, the Caesar has died and that Vespasian has been named the new Caesar. And so according to the Talmudic legend, uh, when this messenger comes, the General Vespasian says, All right. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I'll grant you a wish. And so at this point, you're thinking, oh, he's going to ask for Jerusalem to be spared. He's going to ask for the temple to be spared. But he doesn't ask that. Instead, he says to him, give me Yavne and its scholars and the family line of Rabbi Gamaliel and the physicians to heal Rabbi Tzadok. And the Talmud even says, he ought to have said to them, let the Jews off this time. He, however, thought that so much he would not grant. So he did this such that a little should be saved. So he asked for Yavneh. And why Yavna? What's in Yavna? Yavna became the center of rabbinic learning, a place that focused much more on the practice of Jewish law rather than just sacrifices in the temple. In fact, the, the Tzedekai priests, there was quite a bit of tension between the rabbis and the priests. They felt that the priests were... Uh, actually sort of a corrupt family line, that they extorted money from Jews, that they were unlearned. There, there There were some serious differences between the rabbis and the priests. But what Rabbi Yochanan seems to be doing is thinking about how to establish a portable and sustainable form of Judaism for the exile, a form of Judaism that can be practiced anywhere, that requires no political autonomy over a particular piece of land, and that does not base itself upon sacrifices in the temple. A Judaism that can be practiced anywhere from, from Babylonia to North Africa, from India to Spain. And this in fact does become the form of Judaism that spreads. Rabbinic Judaism is remarkably portable and remarkably sustainable. And while it laments the loss of the temple, it also presents the practice of Jewish prayer and Jewish law as a replacement for it. In the compendium of uh, Vot de Rabbi Natan, the fathers according to Rabbi Nathan, this midrash is describing Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai when they're near Jerusalem. It says, Once when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was leaving Jerusalem, Rabbi Joshua was walking behind him and saw the temple in ruins. <coughs> Rabbi Joshua said, Woe is us that this has been destroyed, the place where atonement was made for the sins of Israel. No, my son, says Rabbi Yochanan, do you not know that we have a means of making atonement that is like it? And what is it? It is deeds of love, as it is said in Hosea 6.6, for I desire kindness and not sacrifice. And so this focus on the study of Torah, on the practice of deeds of loving kindness, and on the performance of mitzvot, in some ways replaces the function served by the temple. And while the rabbis preserve the aspiration for messianic redemption and the return to the land of Israel and the construction of the temple, they also create an alternative that's sustainable anywhere, where Jews in their exile will be able to maintain their religion and their identity and retain their relationship with God. becomes very, very important as the exile continues and Jews live not just under Sasanian rule in Babylonia, but start living throughout the Muslim world with the conquest of the Muslim world in the, of, of, of much of the Jewish communities in the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth centuries. Um, at that point, 90% of the Jewish world lives under Muslim rule. And there were conditions that Jews had to abide by in order to function under Muslim rule. The sort of terms of the Pact of Umar, uh, the, the requirements for those who live as dimis, as tolerated minorities or as people of the book within Muslim uh, political territory. And the basic terms were as follows. They had to pay a jizya, or a poll tax. Um, so there was a tax for each Jew that had to be paid annually in order to live within that territory. They were prohibited from bearing arms, from riding on horses, or from riding using saddles. And essentially that means that they can't form an army. To ride on a horse instead of a camel or a donkey, and to ride using a saddle, was understood as a belligerent stance, that this was, it was sort of like saying you could have a tank um, in in the early medieval period, to ride on a horse with a saddle. It also said that they may not build new houses of worship, They could only use their existing synagogues. It says they may not pray too loudly. Never been entirely sure what that means. I mean, how loudly would they have to pray? But of course, in small settlements where synagogues are close to other settlements um, or other buildings, they couldn't pray so loudly that they interrupted other people. This was okay. There was no uh, loud minaret that would uh, project Jewish prayers throughout the city. Jewish prayer is done inside inside a building. Um, they were not allowed to have processions outside down Muslim streets, so Jews could have religious processions in their own Jewish streets. And of course, the religious processions outside are not that important to Jews, except for accompanying the dead to the cemetery. It says they, may not, they must wear some form of distinctive clothing so that they could be identified as Jews, and they may not hold public political office. For the most part, these kinds of conditions – did not present serious theological challenges for Jews living in Muslim territory. They did not seek to have a political autonomous space within Muslim lands. They did not try to establish their own military. They accepted that they had to pay a tax, and while these things are a burden, they don't cause religious problems for Jews. The requirements did not say Jews must eat pork or Jews must work on Saturday those would have been religious problems. But to say Jews must wear distinctive clothing? Okay, they can do that, and it's a burden, but not a religious problem. And interestingly, the conditions of the Pact of Omar, as we find with most conditions of restriction placed on Jews in the, the pre-modern world, were only applied or enforced very sporadically. And for the most part, on the whole, Jews living in Muslim territory in the premodern world did relatively well. They were able to live in relatively stable communities, and in fact, on the whole, they suffered less violence and less expulsion in the Muslim world than they did in the Christian world. But as the Middle Ages wears on, and we move into the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, more and more Jews start living in Christian territory rather than in Muslim territory. And there, there were a number of conditions that were similar to the requirements of uh, the Pact of Omar. It said that Jews may not have synagogues that exceed the size of churches. And just like we find in Muslim territory, very often Jews were allowed to build synagogues even though the rule was that they couldn't. And can you imagine what was the thing that made the construction of a new synagogue in a given city or territory possible? We needed people. But what made the Muslim or Christian rulers allow them to build a synagogue? What do you think made that an attractive option? More taxes. More taxes. The more Jews who are in a particular territory, the more taxes can be uh, collected from them. The more um, political or more economic activity that's generated through Jewish money lending. And of course, sometimes there were special fees, special taxes, bribes that were part of the building of new synagogues, they were incredibly attractive. And if you know that there's three or four cities nearby and you're the sort of the mayor slash ruler of one of them and that the Jewish community that's coming is bringing tremendous amounts of trade and they're gonna go somewhere as long as they can build a synagogue and you can collect a huge building permit fee for the construction of that synagogue and you get to collect a huge stream of tax revenue By having the Jews live in your city instead of someone else's city, you have these weird scenarios where there were literally bidding wars in both Christian and Muslim territories for granting charters for Jewish communities that often involved kind of de facto the creation of new synagogues, some of them very beautiful. And this reality is part of what made Jewish life in the exile conceivable. And even though Jews were, in Christian territory, as in in Muslim territory, not allowed to dress ostentatiously, this was usually ignored. They were not allowed to marry Christians. That's okay. That was prohibited by Jewish law at the time anyway. Jews were not allowed to insult the Christian faith. All right, Jews didn't have a particular problem with that. They couldn't have Christian slaves. They couldn't hold public office with power over Christians. They couldn't convert Christians uh, to Judaism. These things were fine, Jews weren't particularly looking to uh, do any of these things. And then they had to wear the distinctive badge or hat. Um, And again, while we see this depicted quite a bit in art, and I'm sure you saw this, had this discussion with Mark Michael Epstein, it's not clear entirely that Jews had to wear these distinctive garments in real everyday life. It might in fact simply have been a trope used in art to identify Jews, and even though there was a law uh, requiring Jews um, to, to, to wear these forms of distinctive clothing, it's, it's just not clear how often that law was really enforced. So as Jews are living under these conditions of exile, um, there's a, a special case in the, in, in the condition of exile under Christianity in the, the Middle Ages, sort of high Middle Ages, as we look from the 13th century through the end of the 16th century. And that is that Jews are granted the permission to live in this territory, but under very ambiguous or ambivalent terms. On the one hand, Jews are accepted as the witnesses, this is the doctrine of the witness that I've mentioned in in another talk, Uh, the, the witness doctrine which states that Jews bear witness to the truth of the Old Testament, and that Jews bear witness to what happens to those who reject Jesus, that they're forced to live as exiles, and they're forced to live Under conditions wherein they have no political autonomy, and this serves as a lesson for non Jews that they should convert to Christianity lest they end up like the Jews. What happens when there are no pagans left in Europe to convert? When the majority of the Eurasia or the, 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 the European territory has been Christianized? And what happens when there is In fact, a a sort of consolidation of Christian power, especially throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, as not only the rest of the Iberian Peninsula is reconquered from Muslim control, but in fact, most Muslims are being expelled or are leaving from the Iberian Peninsula. What purpose do Jews serve? And of course, there is one very obvious purpose that they serve, and that would be an economic purpose. But who benefits from the tax revenues generated by uh, Jewish presence. Yes, the kings, the monarchs, uh, and, and the ruling class. The church does not benefit in quite the same way, and the average Christian person does not benefit in quite the same way, at least not as they perceive it. And this creates a whole series of tensions, which then lead to an increasingly negative depiction of Jews in Christian art, and increasing tensions between Jews and their non-Jewish neighbors, especially in Christian territories. This then, we start to find claims of ritual murder. This is the notion that Jews capture Christian, especially young Christian boys, and utilize their blood uh, for uh, ritual purposes. In fact, one of the the most common ways this claim is used is that Jews will uh, kidnap a Christian child on the eve of Passover and use the blood in the making of matzah. Now, of course, if you've ever seen matzah and how it's made, uh, it would not work to put blood in it. This is, is clearly a, a spurious claim, but it, it's a claim that works not for, for Jewish imagery, but for Christian imagery. Right? What does that sound like? A young Christian child captured and bled out. It it sounds like crucifixion, and they would use it for making, how come they don't use it for making Hanukkah latkes? Why Passover? What's really happening in the broader culture at the time, at Passover time? Easter, Easter, right? Where Where they're seeing all kinds of processions in the street, and they're seeing lots of images of crucifixion. There's Holy Week, there's Passion Plays. And in the Middle Ages, it was often told, required for Jews, or at least recommended, when Passion Plays are happening, maybe you should stay inside, Um, and often they did. This was a a very complicated time uh, politically for for Jews, and as the the conditions of exile became more and more difficult, we start to find expulsions happening. Um, Here's just a few of them. From England and Wales, 1290, Jews are expelled. In France, Jews are expelled in 1182, 1306, 1321, and 1394. Germany expels them in 1348, 1510, and 1551. Hungary, 1349 and 1360. Crimea, 1016 and 1350. And Lithuania, 1445 and 1495. And perhaps most famously, the most famous exile is Spain. Spain that had been so famous for its impressive scholars and its important community, rabbinically and otherwise, it was a community that was very, very old, that had been successful for a very long time, for possibly over a thousand years. It was a a Jewish community that was well-respected around the world, was valued. And in 1492, the year that Columbus sails the ocean blue, they expel every single last Jew from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, this is a devastating moment in Jewish history. Many of the Jews go to Portugal, and in fact, well, 10,000, probably the 10,000 mostly exiles from the kingdom of Aragon, 10,000 of the, the exiles from, from Spain move to Portugal, and end up also being um, exiled, sort of exiled, in 1497. 1497. Now, it seems our best estimate is there are about 80,000 Jews who are exiled from Spain in 1492. 10,000 end up in Portugal. The problem is that the the then uh, king or prince of of Portugal um, marries the daughter of the king of Spain. The infanta he marries, though, on the condition that he will follow the church's recommendation that they expel Jews from Portugal. And he's loath to do this because when Jews came to Portugal in 1492, they all had to pay an entrance fee, which was very useful to, to, to the Portuguese, and then they were economically active and can be taxed at any rate. The kings were limited on how much they could tax Christians, but they were not limited on how much they could tax Jews. Jews are very worth, they are, they're, 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 they're very valuable to kings in medieval Europe. And so, it was decreed that in 1497 the Jews would be exiled, and so they go down to the ports on the day designated for their exile, and the king decides, No, I can't lose this much money all at once, and instead all 10,000 of them are forcibly converted to Christianity at the port and retained in Portugal. And then many of them, called conversos, they end up leaving as they can to go to places where they can then return to Judaism. And this development of conversos, of Jews who are converted somewhat forcibly to Christianity is not a new thing. In 1492, it's the completion of a process that actually begins about 100 years earlier, in 1391, when tremendous violence spreads across the Iberian Peninsula. And it would seem that about 100,000 Jews are killed. So this is a huge number. And a portion of those who remained were forcibly converted to Christianity. So we start to see this development over a period of 100 or 150 years of Jews converting to Christianity in Spain, some of them sincerely, but some of them doing so purely to save their own lives. And it causes tensions within Spain itself between what they call the old Christians and the new Christians. The old Christians are those who are not from Jewish stock, and the new Christians are Jews who are converted to Christianity, but everyone suspects their sincerity. And for good reason, many of these Jews converted under duress. This causes tensions within Jewish communities as well. A Jew can never really stop halachically being Jewish. Someone born Jewish remains Jewish. And if they wish to return to the community, they can. But it was dangerous for Jews to be involved in helping Jews who had converted to Christianity return to Judaism because if the Inquisition finds out that Jews are helping new Christians revert to their old faith, they can all be burned at the stake. In fact, much of the impetus for the Inquisition in Spain was about a suspicion regarding the sincerity of the new Christians' faith in Christianity. The culmination of the expulsion of every Jew who must either leave or convert to Christianity in 1492 is the result of a long historical process. But the violence of 1391 did something else. Many Jews left the territory of Iberia at the time. And these established small Jewish communities elsewhere in North Africa, or they went to communities that were already existing there, and they became the anchor who welcomed Jews from the Spanish expulsion in 1492. So the development of a Spanish, of a Sephardic network develops at this time. Now, the word Svarad is actually a biblical word. No one's entirely sure what land it refers to, but for Jews in Spain, they regarded themselves as dwellers of Svarad. However, Jews are exiled from Spain in 1492, and they were used to this idea of Svarad as referring to the general territories which they lived, which meant the idea of Svarad was that this was an old and uh, very dignified area of Jewish exile. But Jewish exiles from Spain didn't know they were Sephardic. And this is very interesting. There's a book about this by my friend and colleague, Jonathan Ray, that the expulsion of 1492 actually creates Sephardic Judaism. Because Jews living in Sephardic didn't think of themselves as Sephardim necessarily. They thought of themselves as Toledans, Barcelonans, Cordobans and their synagogues were established on a city-wide basis. In fact, rabbinic authority was established on citywide communal terms. Spain was composed actually of multiple kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Catalonia, the kingdom of Aragon, and then the large kingdom of Castile. And throughout that, there was not really a network of rabbinic authority. The rabbis in big communities like Barcelona could not boss around the rabbis of small communities like Guadalajara. Where's Guadalajara? It's a beautiful little town, had some interesting Kabbalists. And speaking of our conversation last night, why does Kabbalah develop in, Cab- in Castile? Because it was the wild, wild west. And rabbis couldn't tell anybody in Castile what to do. And people in Castile were living in small communities, probably where the local communal rabbi was the Kabbalist. Who's going to tell them not to write down mystical secrets? No one. And in fact, Castilian rabbis. Aragonese rabbis, they didn't even think of themselves that way. They thought of themselves as a rabbi from a synagogue in Seville, a rabbi from a synagogue in Jerome. And as they experience exile, they start to have to grapple with a number of different questions. One is, now how do they cooperate? And they had to cooperate because the conditions of exile in the first hundred years after 1492 were terrible. Most Jews ended up in the Maghreb, which is the region of Northwest uh, Africa, so generally speaking where Morocco is, and they ended up in Italy. In neither case was this a particularly happy state of affairs. This was a very, very (coughs) difficult set of circumstances for Jews at the time. They were forced to pay an entry fee to any city that they went to, and so for poor Jews, this was a terrible, terrible problem. And the Jewish communities that they were exiled to recognized this problem. And they were now faced with a communal question that they had not been faced with before, where they lived largely stationary lives that were fairly provincial within their towns and cities in Spain. That was, how do they cooperate in order to raise funds to keep Jews from literally starving and dying of disease at the gates of cities in North Africa? And many Jews did indeed starve and die of disease. In fact, some Jews returned to Spain and converted to Christianity just to stay alive. And so now suddenly, Spanish Jews have to cooperate together with North African Jews in order to figure out what to do with people who are literally camped out in front of a city and can't get inside because they can't pay the entrance fees. They have to work together. They also have to ask the question, what happens when rabbis from different communities, a Cordoban, for instance, and a Barcelonan, are functioning in the same cities? How do they share power? How do they learn to respect each other? How do they establish a pluralistic Jewish space for different Jewish minhagim, different Jewish traditions, where they can respect one another? And these kinds of questions really Pressed Jews to think about themselves as an exilic community where they had to think about cooperating with a broader network, a global network, of shared Jewish interests. And that creates a very different perspective for Sephardic exiles. As the 1500s wears on, through the, by the end of the 16th century, Jews are thinking of themselves in this condition not so much as Cordoban, they think of themselves as Sephardic. It develops the Sephardic mentality, but it also expands the perspective of Jews living in many different places. The exiles from Europe helped Jews think about a global rather than a local Jewish community. Even though scholars were aware of the fact that the majority of Jews were living in places in North Africa, in the Middle East, the average Jew from Cordoba did not think very much about Jews living in Aleppo. They didn't even know they were there. As the exiles of the late Middle Ages were on, Jews are always thinking about what's happening with other Jews. They had to help with, for instance, the ransoming of captives. Jews who were exiled were easily taken kidnapped, were kidnapped as prisoners, and then they would be ransomed back to the Jewish community. The community, across all kinds of boundaries within the community, had to pool their resources to redeem those captives. These kinds of questions then pushed Jews to think through questions of international cooperation and to develop mechanisms for working together. And that kind of mechanism was very important for them. They also shared their ideas. One Kabbalist who was exiled from Spain, Rabbi Yehuda Hayat, in the introduction to one of his books, tells the story of his exile, and it's terrible. He talks about being forced to leave Spain. He has some of his possessions with him. He's on a boat, the boat ends up in a port in North Africa that he didn't anticipate. When he comes off, he's taken prisoner. He's kept in a hole with other Jews. And the way that they escape is he bribes his captors with, not money, books. He gives his captors 150 Hebrew books. I think that's a remarkable comment. Jewish books then became a currency, not just for Jews, but for non-Jews as well. They were valuable. Jews buy their books, they read their books, and exile means that Jewish ideas spread quickly all over the world. So there's an ironic outcome from Jewish exile, which is Jews sharing ideas with one another, and Jews working together with one another, including with one of the most interesting problems to aver- emerge from this period in the late Middle Ages, Jews figuring out what to do with conversos, with those forced converts who wish to return to Judaism. And over time, these Jews end up in places like Poland and the Ukraine, very important, of course, for the development of modern Judaism. They end up in the Netherlands. There's a whole other story about Amsterdam, which becomes a very, very important city, with Sephardic and other Jewish exiles, lots of different synagogues, lots of different Jews working together. Uh, By the eve of World War II, 10% of Amsterdam was Jewish. Uh, And this is an important part of this story of Jews becoming modern. Because the modern period and the early modern period is characterized by people on the move, moving not just to places that we expect, North Africa, the Ottoman Empire, Jews are moving to all of these places, but also to new places like the New World. And Sephardic exiles become some of the first to move to the Caribbean and to move to North America. But as they continue to move, they have developed ways of working together and of enabling Jews on the move to be accepted in the places where they go and to be enabled to build new lives. This was very important for Jews and for Jewish survival during this period of mass movements of peoples in the 17, 18, and 1900s. As conditions became unfavorable in one place, Jews could move to another place in a way that non-Jews really couldn't as readily because there were Jewish communities there to welcome them and to enable them to build new lives. Even within the United States, Jews move around a lot. And of course, if Jews move somewhere, uh, they go to a synagogue, and I'm sure rabbis have encouraged it, uh, encountered this, They'll, people will call you and say, hi, I'm new in town. Right? I'm sure you welcome those calls. And there are people to help. There are volunteers to help. And there are communal mechanisms in place to welcome new people. They're valuable to new communities. They're cherished by new communities. And this helps Jews be able to resettle as conditions require. And the lessons of these medieval expulsions were carried by Jews into the unsettled modern period and were enormously, enormously valuable. So I, I certainly hope never to need this function of the Jewish community under duress, but it's comforting to know that almost wherever we go, there are Jews there ready to welcome us. Thank you and Shabbat, shabbat. I'm happy for any questions you might have. Yes. I just caught the tail end of the news report yesterday or the day before that Spain had proclaimed its understanding of what happened in 1492 and was welcoming any people who could trace their... Did you hear any of that? This is... I didn't hear it specifically. Um, I was... I was, I was too busy uh, moving around in Southern California, but I'll check this out. This, King Juan Carlos, the, the, the question was that recently um, Spain has uh, been talking about its understanding of what happened in 1492, and its willingness to welcome Jews back. This is something that King Juan Carlos of Spain has done for some time. Um, I, at, at, at New York University, where I did my PhD, the building was called the King Juan Carlos Center. Uh, and Jewish Studies was just one of the departments located in that building and there was the portrait room uh, that had a big portrait of King Juan Carlos um, and he was the one who has been formally welcoming Jews back to Spain and wishing to make a kind of reparation. And there is some utility to the Spanish economy, let us not forget, uh, if uh, Jewish communities are re in Spain. Um, however, this is something that is at odds with an element of Spanish society that's still there, which still believes that 1492, which saw the expulsion not only of Jews, but of Muslims as well, that this was important for the consolidation of Spanish society. Juan Carlos is from a more liberal bent that actually laments the loss of Spanish diversity in that moment, and would welcome the return and reestablishment of Jewish communities in Spain. I was in southern Spain in Andalusia this summer, and there are Jewish communities there in the beach town of Marbella. They have a kosher food section that absolutely uh, puts to shame the kosher food section in the the supermarkets in Allentown where I live, Um, including even shoulder of kid uh, uh, shoulder of goat is one of the cuts of meat you can buy. I, I thought it great, I was going to try it. Uh, but yes, this is something that's happening in Spain, and, and there are many Sephardic Jews who can trace their heritage and would be enthusiastically welcomed by the Spanish government. Yes, sir. Is the question Maranos? Yeah. Yes. So, Moranos is another word that was used to refer to conversos. They believe the word may be related to a word connoting pork. So, the, the, the Moranos would be people who had been converted to Judaism, but continued to privately practice... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, had been converted to Christianity, but privately practiced Judaism. Uh, but in secret. And developed traditions such as on Friday night, closing the windows, lighting candles in secret in the basement or somewhere in a room with no light, um, of not eating pork, uh, of not eating bread during the time of Passover, many such um, traditions. And there are communities of Maranos um, in a lot of places in the world, Southern California is is known to have some, New Mexico, the state of Mexico, um, sorry? and New Mexico. Uh, yeah, so. So Moranos, some Moranos return to Judaism. There's a community I know in um, Argentina where there are Moranos who, who are happy to continue to live with a community of other Moranos, um, and since they're no longer under duress, they'll have things like a very large Christmas tree, and you look at the back of it, and it's a very large menorah. Okay, so there you see things like this. But the the uh, creation of the phenomenon of the secret Jews, the Moranos who were conversos who then practiced Judaism secretly, sometimes so secretly that the traditions became lost in their community or in their families, and people just know that at you know, Friday nights, grandma lights candles in the basement, and if you ask her why, she'll say, I don't know, my grandmother always did this. This is the legacy of the, the sort of really the important role that Jewish converts have played within Spanish and within the broader Spanish-speaking world since the end of the, of the 15th century. And it, it's um, another remarkable phenomenon uh, of, of Jewish impact in a world after expulsion. Yes? What is defined as the medieval period? I kind of missed it, it kind of depends who you ask, but probably somewhere from the 8th century until the end of the 16th century. Um, so that, that period of time, and then we enter the early modern period and the modern period. Um, and that, sort of move to modernity also involved uh, embrace of people moving around. And Jews were able to function in this unsettled period of early modern and modern life, ironically because of their experiences of exile. And so what I'm suggesting is that this was a very important time for Jews to develop the communal institutions that have allowed Jewish life to persist. And in the modern period, which we sort of barely got to, there were lots of exiles. In fact, almost all of us here have been the result of an exile of one form or another. World War II uprooted much of the Jewish community. And then later in the 20th century, in the tensions in the Middle East, many of the Middle Eastern Jewish communities uh, were places of significant immigration or outright exile. And the Jewish world was not at a loss for what to do. Under those circumstances, there were long-standing Jewish traditions and communal institutions for welcoming in people on the move. And this became, I think, an important element in Jewish survival. And for another day and another talk, I think it also became an important factor in the development of Jewish thought and literature as well. Yes? There was a time when Christianity, at least Western Christianity, was monolithic. Everybody was a Catholic. Then you had the Reformation, which created two different kinds of Christians. They had to get along and live together, people of different philosophies. How did the Reformation affect the acceptance of Jews, exiled Jews, in your um, Europe? It depended where they were, um, and it really was much more local. I don't think it was just a question of Catholic versus Protestant. It was really about the rulers in local places. Amsterdam welcomed Jews, and though they had lots of policies restricting Jewish settlement, restricting Jewish access to certain kinds of uh, communal authority, and restricting the development of synagogues, has anyone been to Amsterdam and seen the synagogues? Yes. They're beautiful, right? Yes. And the Spanish synagogue, I, I, I dogged there last spring. Gorgeous. And what happens is you have these regulations limiting Jewish movements and and behaviors, and they are almost systematically ignored. And when they're almost systematically ignored, the local community says, good enough, and Jews move there in large numbers. And I don't think that was just a question of Protestant or Catholic. What it's a reflection of is that even within Protestant and Catholic Christianity, and within Catholicism since the Middle Ages, it was very local. You find different kinds of authority and different Practices in different cities and different places. And as those kinds of opportunities are created by a locality, a Christian locality, where Jews are welcomed, Jews move there. And they're able to be mobile because of the networks of Jewish cooperation that enable it. When the conditions then collapse and Jews are forced to leave, they're able to go elsewhere, again because of those mechanisms of mobility that enable it. And that, I don't think, is unique to Protestants and Catholics. I think that they reflect local allegiances and local differences as well. And that was what Jews really had to contend with, was different localities. Yes, sir? uh, I think in the equation that we're talking about, the establishment of the state of Israel, I think, altered some of this exile because of the draw of Israel. I think that it's a reflection, then, of that unsettled 20th century. And Israel was one of the places where Jews could resettle. And the practices of the ingathering of exiles in Israel, I think, is not something unique to Israel. We see this in Jewish communities all over the world. American Jewish communities also welcomed exiles in in many different ways. Um, This was vital for the ability of Jews to survive modernity, just as it was vital for the ability of Jews to survive in pre-modernity, there are no more Edelites or Canaanites left. And it seems that when they had their temples destroyed and their land confiscated, they, they didn't have a sustainable identity or a set of cultural practices that enabled them to transplant themselves. Rabbinic Judaism is different in this respect, in that they did have a sustainable identity and they were able to move. The kinds of practices that happen in Israel of welcoming in people, this is actually the only latest expression of what has been a long-standing Jewish practice of accommodating Jewish migrations and population movements. Uh, Yes? What caused the uh, great number of Jewish people to immigrate into Poland so that Poland became one of the largest Jewish communities in Europe? They were welcome there. Uh, the favorable taxation, existing Jewish communities as it got bigger becomes more of a draw. And the fact that they weren't being kicked out of Poland. They were able to establish communities, they could build synagogues, Um, there were rabbinic forms of authority there that were respected by the government, Jews were relatively unhassled in that environment, and it was an economy that accommodated them, and as Jews moved there, they became a very important part of that economy. The fabric of Polish society incorporated Jews within it, to the point that in the 19th and 20th centuries, it was around 10% of the Polish population. So Poland was very attractive in that respect. Um, We didn't find a substantial exile of Jews from Poland until World War II, similarly in the Netherlands, similarly in parts of the Ottoman Empire, and in parts of North Africa. And Jews were, they were drawn there because it was a, it was a viable place to go. But I, I don't think it was anything else particular. They weren't sitting around thinking, wow, I really love the idea of Poland. They were, they were thinking, I really love the idea of being in a strong, vibrant, stable Jewish community. And I have a friend whose cousin lives in Poland. And that's how they end up where they end up. Rabbi? No. Oh, uh, okay, I have time for one more question. Yes. Any reason to believe that this pattern of coming and going for the Jews and becoming welcome, welcome and being oppressed is not continuing to this time? We hear of rising anti Semitism in Europe, and yet there are some European com- countries that are calling for Jews to come back. So the question is about the, whether we still see this unsettled pattern of Jews moving from place to place and, and the question of Europe today. Um, I mean, Europe has been incredibly unsettled. And Jewish communities have been growing in Europe, but also from elsewhere. So, from we see Russian communities moving into parts of Germany. We see North African communities moving into France. And this unsettledness has been able to function largely because of the Jewish capacity to accommodate shifting populations. Um, will the European population continue to shift? There was, I was in Europe this summer there's no question that it's a very complicated environment right now. Salo um, Baron says that the medieval expulsions were the result of a consolidation of national identities in places like England, France, and then Spain, where their notion of what it meant to be, to be English, to be French, and to be Spanish became much more homogeneous. And they imagined it as people who were of the same ethnic and religious background as they were. And As that happens, the place of Jews in that society becomes more problematic. So, the kinds of nationalisms that we see in Europe today, it does lead us to wonder will they be able to embrace a notion of a kind of pluralistic democratic identity, or will they have a more kind of ethnically based notion of something that is purely Austrian, purely French, and will that? create difficulties for Jews establishing a place for themselves in those societies? I think that's a good question. And if it becomes problematic, probably those Jews will move somewhere, and probably they will be welcomed somewhere they choose to move by other Jews. Okay, well, thank you very, very much.